Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad to be able to share with you this morning. We've got a number of things going on, uh, but it's really glad that you decided to be here with us today. Um, yesterday, my, my wife and I had the opportunity to play. We, we grew up not too far from here, and so we got to play an alumni soccer game. And so we were invited to come back and uh, play with people who were 20 years younger than us and much better than us. We got to run around the field and act like fools for the evening. And for once, my kids got to stand on the sidelines and watch me play soccer instead of the other way around. Uh, One of our friends who came and played is a pastor of another church. And so uh, after the game was over, he he, uh, he, he was joking around. He said, hey, do you know what you're going to be preaching on tomorrow? And, uh, and he said, I still got some work to do. I still got some work to do. And, and one of my kids piped in and said, it's going to be a terrible sermon. <laughs> I mean, this is a friend of mine who, like, again, we, I understand. He understands what it takes to get a sermon together and that type of thing. And like, I want to be authentic and real with him and say, yeah, I didn't have all the pieces together yet and we're still thinking through it. But one of my kids says, yeah, it's going to be a terrible sermon. And then the rest of the kids all piped in and said, yeah, it really is. <laughs> so the reason why my middle schooler said that is because today we are going to be talking about sex and sexuality and love and relationships. And there's nothing worse for a middle schooler than talking about these things. But we're going to talk about it today because it's in Scripture, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, and we are in our final week in this series uh, that we call Tough Choices. We've been reading through uh, really these uh, Proverbs that come from uh, Solomon and the way that he's put things together, organized things together. Uh, He's written to his son, and he said, I want you to take these things to heart. I want you to to really spend some time in that. As we've talked about the series, if you remember, the first nine chapters is really Solomon talking to his son or a group of uh, young men. Uh, in, his, uh, in his leadership there. And then in the center section, he has taken all these different truths and pithy statements from all over the world, the known world at that time, and made this library. And then he finishes up with chapters 30 and 31, and we're going to spend some time there today of kind of putting uh, the end on it all and be able to come back and focus on really what is a healthy Uh, godly woman and the way that uh, wisdom throughout the book is being personified as this beautiful woman that we should all pursue or this beautiful thing, uh, this beautiful and lovely thing that we should pursue. And we're going to see that in marriage this morning. So as we talk about these things, and it, it is interesting to have middle schoolers and trying to really come at a conversation like this and to be intentional about a conversation like this. Uh, because in our home, and some of you have lived through this years ago, some of you haven't gotten into this phase yet, but know that it's coming. Uh, when you're sitting in the evening and we've put the youngest kids to bed and now the middle schoolers were trying to watch television together, and, and there's times where you're trying to figure out the balance of, of what you're really going to allow your kids to watch with you uh, together there in the home. And shows that we have long loved and enjoyed have now been, there's these other characters and these other relationships and these other personalities there added, uh, whether that is a sitcom or whether that is a Disney program or whether that is uh, something that is more of a reality TV and now these other characters uh, on a game show have been added to the mix and, and, and you're being inundated with all of these different things. And as a parent and as a pastor of a church and as a leader of the home, trying to figure out and trying to balance what that looks like. And many of you have been through this journey ahead of us and we are learning from you, 
But really, we need to know what is not only uh, knowledgeable and what is good about the information we do share with our kids or don't share, but what is really wise at the end of the day. And so that's why we come to a book like Proverbs. So we're going to start today in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. So just watching television with your kids can become difficult. Sometimes just sending your kids to school uh, can be confusing. Our kids are in public school, but those of you with your kids in private school, it's no different, or even those who are being homeschooled. It can be a confusing place because there's all of these other voices that are trying to speak into your child, and you have to try to balance that and make sure that you are keeping tabs on things. In many ways, children have been turned into pawns in a cultural war that is going on all around us. There's experimentation with what do our kids uh, think and what do they believe and how can we talk to them. And we are part of this whether we like this or not. And it's all around us. Uh, Different administrations come into office and they change things and push things one way or another. And our kids are caught in the middle of it. We are caught in the middle of this culture is going on. So today we're going to talk about a few things that are difficult. I'm going to try to come at it as respectfully as I can, uh, but understand really at the root of things, we are looking for what is wise. And if we're going to find out what is wise, we're going to have to come back to Scripture to do so. If I use the acronym LGBT, it initially stood for and stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, but that's not enough anymore to recognize all of this, uh, all of what is going on in culture around us. Uh, the reality is, is that the Q has been added now, which once stood for, for uh, queer, but now it is uh, those who are questioning their sexual identity. So LGBTQ has been now uh, in, in basic normal uh, conversation in many culture uh, conversations since even as early as 1996. But listen to where, how far the acronym has grown. LGBTQQIP2AA stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, queer, intersexual, pansexual, two-spirit, 2S, or androgynous, and asexual. And so this term is being expanded again and again and again, some of those that you may not have heard of before, the two-spirit refers to a person who identifies as having both masculine and a feminine spirit being used by some indigenous people to describe their sexual gender and or what they describe as their spiritual identity. A trigender person may shift from one gender to another depending on the individual's mood or situation. Trigender identifies identities do not equate or disassociate identity disorder, which is a mental disorder. No, this is a clinically significant difference between uh, this and a trigender person. In 2017, the Chicago Tribune wrote that while the letters Q and I and A were added, the LGBT is an evolving abbreviation. This was back in 2017, a process that in and of itself isn't so surprising or isn't so remarkable that we would continue to see this acronym grow. And so uh, a cissexual or cisgender, I'm saying this wrong, Uh, Simply cis as a term for people whose gender identity matches the sex that they were assigned to at birth. For example, someone who identifies as a woman and was assigned a female at birth is cis woman. This uh, term is the opposite of the word or of the understanding of transgender. So being 
described and named a female at birth, uh, and having the female anatomy is a person who is cis. So cis relates specifically to gender rather than sexuality. A person can be cis and have any sort of sexuality. For example, two men can both be cis, but one be straight and the other be gay. Are you confused? Yeah, I understand. So what's going on? What on earth is happening? Why is it that which was once condemned is now celebrated? Why is it that once was now celebrated is now condemned? And why do those who refuse to celebrate on some of these uh, topics and to be excited for someone, why is it that they must be condemned? And so we need to look at Scripture, see what Scripture says. Let's even take a moment to say uh, what Scripture does not say is what we're going to spend some time in this morning. But we are going to do so, again, as I said, as respectfully and as honestly as we can. So if you've got your bulletins this morning, there's a white sheet of paper in your bulletin. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open to Proverbs chapter 5, here's your first fill-in for you this morning. We need to pay attention to what's really going on. We need to pay attention to what's really going on. My son, it says, uh, beginning in verse 1, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and that your lips may preserve knowledge. There's, there's not a lack of information, friends. What I'm reading to you is more information than I can digest all at one time myself after spending a number of days this week and a number of months over this year really trying to think through this and how we would talk about there, There's not a lack of information. You can, and some of you may be doing that right, you can Google this stuff as fast as I can say it from the pulpit and find out even more information than I could ever throw at you. So what we don't need is more information and more knowledge. No, what we need to do is maintain discretion to be able to understand, to be able to apply and to fabricate and then to be able to look at what does the Bible say? How do I look through that lens and understand what it is, that, what is going on and how are we going to handle that? And the immediate illustration that Solomon gives as a, as a point to be able to say, if you're going to maintain discretion and your lips are going to preserve knowledge so that you can speak intelligently about what's going on, is he gives this illustration of the adulterous woman. It says, for the lips of the adulterous woman will drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, he said, it is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought of the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not even know it. And so he gives this one example, but I'm going to expand on that to be able to say this is also an example of, of this uh, confusion and, and disturbed uh, pursuit of sexuality in and of itself will always end up at, at this end, that her paths wander aimlessly even though she does not know it. People who do not follow God often will lack, and we're taught in Scripture, lack the capacity to realize the fact that they are aimless. And so we should not expect the world to act like those who have the focal point, the bullseye of Jesus Christ to direct their lives. We should expect them to be aimless. We should expect them to be confused and not certain of what their next steps are. Solomon is saying to his sons as he continues on in the chapter to, to listen to me, to pay attention to what I say, choose to stay far away from a woman like this, to, to those who are living any, any life like this, stay away, stay away. 
house, go to a different restaurant, move your gym membership, find a different way to go, stay away from this situation. If you don't, particularly for the adulterous woman, you will lose your reputation, your dignity, your wealth, your results of all the hard work that you have put in so far. Do not even walk near her. Verse 16 of the same chapter says this, should your springs overflow in the streets? Would your streams of water be run into public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice with the wife of your youth. So in the ancient Middle East, running water uh, being protected from the rest of, of what contaminate it was an important thing, particularly if you were wealthy enough to own your own well. You would never allow that to become contaminated. It was rare for the wealthy. And he puts these images together when he talks about sex and sexuality, saying, why would you ever allow what is so precious to become contaminated? Why would you allow and why would you ever have it be shared with strangers? Farther down in verse 21, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. He examines your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked will ensnare them. The cords of their sin will hold them fast. But for the lack of discipline, they will die. They are being led astray by their great folly. So Solomon brings back the wisest man ever to walk the earth. He brings things back into God's realm. He isn't even really debating the issue here. He isn't even talking about the pros and cons. He's just reminding his sons that ultimately they will have to stand before a holy God and answer to God for the choices that they have made. He points out that there are some unnatural, excuse me, some unfortunate and natural consequences of sin, and eventually sin will ensnare those who choose to be part of it. But really, he is bringing them back to that their responsibility will one day be able to stand before God. Then chapter 6 is your second fill-in for you this morning. Is this, don't get caught in the trap. So first, pay attention to what's going on. But second, don't get caught in the trap. Verse 4 of chapter 6. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you slugger, consider its ways, and be wise. So in the context, chapters 5 through 7, Solomon is writing to his son or a group of young men. He's saying, I need you to pay attention. I need you to really stay away and abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on what seems like a sidetrack to be able to talk about a hard work ethic. But keep it in context and understand what he is pointing out is it is really, really hard to take a position and follow through with it in these conversations. There's over 11,000 different kinds of ants. I didn't know that. They number over one quadrillion worldwide. That is a 10 followed by 15 zeros. I had to Google how to say that word correctly. Quadrillion is how many that is. If the ants in the Amazon rainforest were weighed, they would weigh four times more than all the other mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians living in that area combined. And you want to go to the Amazon and meet all of the ants. There's a few things just to think about when it comes to an ant and when it comes to the work ethic of an ant. The ant's work is productive. Thousands of ants will dwell in one colony, but every one of them pulls his own weight. 
The ant's work is persistent. An ant never gets mad and quit. They never seek a promotion or, or ask if they can get paid more for their work. If you destroy an anthill with your foot, what happens? They immediately begin the work of rebuilding this anthill. The ant's work is a partnership. Each ant has its own roles. There are engineers, there are drivers, there are workers all within that ant colony. They're organized like cities with streets, supply rooms, with barracks, with hatcheries, uh, the store up supplies for the future. It's a beautiful thing. And at the end of the day, we hate them. But really, why would Solomon use them as an example in the middle of this discussion of what it looks like to refrain or pull away from sexual immorality? Interestingly enough, when you think about it, he's using this ant and its lifestyle, and it's rigid, and yes, it is a continuous work, but he says, go to the ant, you sluggard, and be free from the trap. Find freedom in this life, this hard-working ethic of the ant. Verse 27 of the same chapter of chapter 6 uses a different illustration. It says, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet getting scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. I love fire. I don't know if you do. It's, it's something that's just a something growing up in the country or whatever. This time of year, uh, there are people in my hometown that are getting together in the evenings this time of year, and they're not just gathering together around a campfire. They're gathering around some type of bonfire that would take up the whole center aisle of this church. A massive, dangerous uh, exposition of what it looks like for man to have fire in his control and be able to just chant and shout at the moon is really what is happening. There's something beautiful about fire. We're working at our house right now. We're, we're putting a deck on the back of the house, and so we're doing some building things. But really, hopefully, when it all comes together, we actually have a fire pit built into the center of the plans, the blueprint for what, how we want things to go. Because there's something that gathers you there. In our, in our home, uh, most years, we actually heat our home almost entirely with firewood. So that we, and it's not easy. I have to get up. My alarm goes off at 3 o'clock in the morning, every single morning. I have to trudge down to the fire and get the fire going again. And, but there's something about a house when it is zero degrees, 10 degrees outside that you come into and it's 70 or 80 degrees with wood heat and the whole house is warm. The skeleton of the house, if you will, the bones of the house are warm. It's warm and inviting. I love fire. I do not love fire in my lap. Anytime that you work with fire, as often as I do, is you're, you're stirring, the, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're squatted down by the fire and you're trying to mess with the coals and you pull that coal into your lap, you've got a problem. You have something to consider very quickly. You don't have time to weigh the pros and cons of whether to leave this hot burning coal in your lap and see if it's going to work out okay. It's not gonna work out okay. And he uses this analogy, and he says, really, at the, at the base of this thing, he says, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? I love a good fire. 
I love a good fire that happens between the romance between a husband and wife. The love that happens between a husband and a wife in the marriage bed is a beautiful thing. That is a good fire. But any time that it gets pulled out of that context, it is a dangerous thing. I remember a youth pastor giving that analogy, and you may have heard this before. A fire in the fireplace is a beautiful thing. It warms the house. Pull it out into the living room and spread it all over the floor, and now you've got a major problem that you have to deal with. You're going to get burned. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 21, will show you how you get burned. With persuasive words, she led him astray. Again, talking about a seductive woman. She, she seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. I have not ever, ever slaughtered an ox. I don't know. Raise your hand this morning if you personally have slaughtered an ox. None of us have. Right? This illustration is old. It's, it's, it's not one that we currently use. But do you understand the word picture of what's going on? It doesn't work out real well for the ox. Like a deer stepping into a noose until arrows pierces his liver, pierce his liver. I didn't know that you should shoot a deer with a, into the liver, directly into the liver. That's interesting to me. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn toward her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims that she has brought down, and her slain are a mighty throng. I think it's important to note that there. Her slain are a mighty throng, meaning that it was not the weak that fell into this trap. It is a wide birth. Those who thought they were strong, those who thought they were diligent, fall into this trap. You see, one of the great dangers of not knowing God's wisdom is that we don't easily recognize foolishness. Satan is a master at counterfeiting good things that God offers. And without godly wisdom, we have great difficulty discerning what it seems right based on the world's values. It seems okay. Specifically, in this situation, when I talk about sex outside of marriage, it seems okay, even though the Bible clearly discourages it again and again. Yet many adults, Christians included, sincerely believe that living and sleeping together before marriage is the best way to determine compatibility. And 2008 was the most recent stat that I could find that felt like it was accurate to say 85% of marriages within the church and outside of the church begin after cohabitation. That was over 10 years ago. And because the spike was so sudden after that, they were unable to be able to clearly be able to define in the George Barner research, be able to say how high that number actually has gotten. So a lot of people might say this. Well, here's why we're doing this. Money is tight. If we live together, we're going to save some money. And a lot of people then would make a pretty convincing argument that this would be a good financial decision for them to do. A lot of people would say, hey, we hope to get married someday. We really love each other. And so we're just going to give this a test run. And almost always what follows that is this argument. You know, you would never buy a car without taking it for a test drive first, would you? And that might be true about a car. That's not even so true anymore. But the reality is, is that argument might work for the car. But let's take that for a, a different, uh, if you were going to eat dinner this afternoon 
and you were going to a restaurant that you loved and you had heard so many good things about. And so you decide that because you've heard so many good things about, you're going to ask your friend to take a test drive through the food that you are going to eat and chew it up and taste it and, have, and then see if it tastes good and then take it out and put it back on your plate. The analogy breaks down a little bit. Craig Rochelle is a pastor. He's uh, the pastor who uh, leads a church that the Version Bible, which is a very useful uh, tool and application that we use uh, here as a church as well. He uses this example, and he does a video of it. He has uh, a, a guy and a girl in the bed with blankets pulled over them, and then he is standing in front of them uh, sharing with them uh, a cohabitation ceremony that goes like this. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here together on this unholy day to witness the cohabitation ceremony of this young couple. And he says to the one, Josh, would you repeat after me? I, Josh, take you, Julie, to be my cohabitant, to have sex with you and to hold you responsible for at least half of the bills, to love you and take advantage of you from this day forward or as long as this arrangement works out. I will be more or less faithful to you as long as my needs are met and no one better comes along. If we should break up, it does not mean this wasn't special to me because I love you almost as much as I love myself. I commit to live you for a while, so help me, so help me in the name of sex and selfishness. Amen. Now, Josh, you may kiss your, well, you guys know what to do. And so the illustration there is given the extreme difference between what cohabitation really looks like compared to what a covenant of marriage looks like. And yet 85%, 10 years ago, were already in relationships that said that the first thing you should do is live together, even though all the stats, both those who are scripturally based and those who are entirely secular based, would say it is not working out really well for those who have lived together. It's not working out really well for the number of single mothers that we have in this country because they were living together with someone before they got married. Pay attention to what's going on, friends. Don't get caught in the trap. You must, you have to, here's your feeling, find the one. You have to go out and find the one. Raise your hands this morning if you are married. All right, raise them up high, good. How many of you are not married? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Uh, as you've got your hand raised, take a look around the room. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Take a look around the room. Yep. All right. Just want to make sure you see each other. How many of you are married, but after a few years, you'd like to take another shot at the room? Raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. I love it whenever I meet someone here at the church, or it seemed like it was even more so when I worked with college ministry or youth ministry specifically. A girl comes running up and she says, oh, you're not going to believe it. This, this guy that I met, he's so incredible. He's amazing. You should see how strong he is. He lifts things all the time. <laughs> he gives me, well, you know, he gives me goosebumps. And, and, and we just knew. We looked at each other and we... We just knew. Isn't it amazing how many weeks, months, maybe years later that that same person is driving them absolutely crazy? All he ever does is go around the house lifting things, thinking that I'll be impressed. 
Turn over to Proverbs chapter 30, please. Proverbs chapter 30. You have to find the one. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, an inspired utterance, inspired utterance. I'm weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I'm only a brute. I'm not a man. I don't have human understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I attained the knowledge of the one, the Holy One, friends. You have to find the one. This king, this ruler is searching. He says, I feel foolish. I'm searching for knowledge. I'm looking everywhere. I can't seem to find anything. I'm looking for the one. And Solomon, when he adds it to it, he says, he's looking for the holy one. And then he adds in here and he says, the one who is, who, is, who is it that has gone up to heaven and has come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in the cloak? Who's established <coughs> the ends of the earth? What is his name? And then even more, he says, and what is the name of his son? Is there a better illustration and shadow that points us forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come. What is his name? What's the name of his son? Surely you must know. And here's the conclusion he comes to. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who will just take refuge in him. Oh my goodness. She's incredible. She loves Jesus. She's awesome, she looks good, and she smells good too. She's perfect. You're, you're not going to believe this. You're just not going to believe this. I think that she just might be the two. She just might be the two. Because if you're taking notes this morning, if you're writing this down, never forget that Jesus is the one. And whoever he is or whoever she is, is the two. To be really fulfilled in life, you have to find the one. Jesus is the one and your spouse is the two. I'll even go further to say this, that pursuing marriage or pursuing that person that you love more than pursuing God is idolatry. Jesus is the one. We are put on this earth and on this planet to glorify God and God alone. Jesus is the one. And your spouse or the process of going and finding a spouse, finding that person that you can spend the rest of your life with is the two. So treasure, this is the next fill-in for you, so treasure what God has given you. Treasure what God has given you. In Proverbs chapter 31, we read about the virtuous woman, beginning in verse 10, says this, a wife of noble uh, character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her, and, he lacks no, and she lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. For those of you who are married and you've been married for a number of years, and so you thought this message wasn't going to be for you this morning, you've just been cruising along, I want to remind you that our population and, and our statistics continue to drive that those who've been married for 30 or more years are walking away from their marriages more than ever before. If you look at the damage and you look at the confusion and you look at all that seems to be very disturbing about uh, relationships and the way that lives are put together at, their, at, at the beginning points of dating and love and relationships, 
What on earth is going on with those of you and those of us who've been married for 30 years or more? When we talk about all the damage that happens in a broken marriage, realize that this is not a problem that is happening out there. It is happening within our churches. And statistically, half of this room is dealing with divorce. God-fearing, Christ-following people who have been divorced or will be divorced. You see here, the picture that is given is that the, the wise husband never demands his wife, demeans his wife, excuse me. He never puts her down or makes her the butt of a joke. She is far too precious for a cheap laugh. The husband who fears the Lord and believes and lives in sync with him understands the fact that his wife is far more valuable than a truck bed filled to the brim with diamonds. She is the most precious thing. She is rare. Therefore, she is treasured above all the things that moth and rust will destroy. A man needs to be enamored with his wife. She's far more interesting, far more invigorating than the football game, than the Netflix series, than touchdowns, than a beautiful golf swing. This is your bride. This is your wife, men. She is to be treasured. And it is the wise woman who sees her husband as a living and breathing testimony of God's grace towards her. Wives who want to live for the glory of Christ must ask some critical questions. Is my husband precious to me? Does he sense how much I adore him? After God himself, would he believe how he is to me because of how I love him? Is it obvious? Are we honoring? Are we respectful? Are we loving one another until death do us part? If you're not married yet, put healthy, loving, and God-honoring marriages all around you in every way you possibly can. Put loving relationships around you where God is at the forefront. Ask someone in this room, in this church, who's been married as long as you've been alive two or three times over, say, can we please go out and eat ice cream together? I want to see how an old married couple eats ice cream so that I know how to do it. Put them at the absolute highest priority and the highest value. Why? Because Jesus uses this illustration and he puts it at the highest value and the highest priority when he says that the church is his bride. Look for someone when you choose to date, whenever that is, at whatever point that becomes. This is a church where the youth group was a prime location for many of you to find a spouse. And that's good. We actually look at that. We, we have programs on Thursday night that are boy-specific and girl-specific, but we have a youth group where guys and girls have to interact together. And we think that's really healthy because where else are young boys and young girls supposed to learn how to interact with each other in a godly and healthy way? So when you start dating, or if you've started dating, or if you're pursuing someone, are you looking for someone who is going to treasure you like what we see here in Proverbs chapter 31? Looking for someone who honors Christ first. Looking for someone who will honor and respect and care for you second. Who looks for number one and looks for number two. So treasure what God has given you. Next fill in, accept the authority of the Bible. Bottom line, 
Accept the authority of the Bible. I need you to go to the New Testament for this one. First Thessalonians. Make your way over, hang a right to the New Testament. First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. This seems to me really to be the central issue at the heart of the controversy of this sexual revolution. Are we created as both uh, the Hebrew scriptures and uh, the scriptures that we have in our hands, as Jesus put it, were we created male and female in the beginning, God created male and female that is arbitrary and it cannot be allowed to be self-willed? Do our bodies, do our sexes represent something of who we were designed to be? And then it does actually impose some limits on us and how we are going to recreate ourselves because we were created by a God-making creator. But after generations of no-fault divorces, cohabitation, pornography, and the culture of unhinging sex from marriage, marriage from childbearing, it only seems inevitable that our Western culture is now even breaking apart sexuality from what seems like the most basic of reality and that of gender. But that is not the issue at hand, friends. The authority of Scripture is built around there is a God he is the creator, and I am the created. He put things in order, and I follow that order. And it says here, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. The idea that we can just decide what sex that we will be, or just decide that who we are pursuing our lives after is against what we have as a creator before us. The, the, the old statement of you're only as old as you feel could be pushed to the extreme to be able to say, well, I'm actually a millennial and I'm trapped in a Gen X body. It's something you could, you could do with it, like I am not 60 years old, I'm 20 years old, no matter what you tell me. It's a misunderstanding of being something that is created as if we have the own authority over our own lives. Accept the authority of the Bible. Accept the authority of the Lord. We must bear witness to, we must give testimony to the goodness of what it means to live as creatures, as the created being. As, as the ones who are not self-defining gods or goddesses, but God created us to be human. And so within that, humanity as male and female is a beautiful thing. We are all sinners, and so we chafe against the idea that we would have to be under someone's control or someone's authority, and not only by our own ideologies and our own thinking, but remember what has been taught to you, it says here, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Over time, 
Most scholars believe that within the framework of what we are seeing right now, that it is unsustainable. The sexual revolution is unsustainable. Specifically, even the division between transgender and homosexuals, that there will be a break there because homosexuals, at the beginning of, of what they are being able to define themselves as, to be able to say, uh, in the beginning, when I was a boy who wanted to play with girls' things, there was, there was something there, and so I was, I'm trapped in the wrong body, and so therefore, I pursue after something else. But, but there's a break there because many homosexuals have fought for the right to be married to each other and to have kids together and to own property and have insurance for their families and those type of things. And, and what's happening when that is all unrooted and pulled apart is that the transgender argument would say, well, none of that actually matters and none of that is consistent enough for us to be able to build our ethos around. And even within and of that self, sexual revolution will not be able to keep up with the promises that it is putting out there. It can't, and it never has. But Christ does. Jesus Christ, Son of a holy God, gave his own son for you and for me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 says this, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, but working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way that you live. They will respect the way that you live because they understand that you are being consistent Last feeling for you this morning, though, in all of this, is you must choose how you love people. If you've heard something different from me this morning, I apologize right there. We cannot, we cannot use the Bible as a weapon. We cannot attack people with Scripture if they are not God-fearing people because they are going to be of a different mindset. Romans chapter 1, we just spent... Uh, eight months, nine months in Romans, but Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 says, through Christ God has given us the privilege, the authority of apostles to tell everyone everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing what? Glory to his name. And he's talking to the people in Rome. You are included among those Gentiles who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says, come on in. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you what? Grace and peace. He said, come on in. You're coming from an entirely different context, but come on in. So if we are going, if you are going to love people, you need to remember this. We're wrong if we don't think that God cares about our sexuality. He does. He put that desire in us, the desire to, to be able to love someone. The gospel is not let the gay become straight. The gospel is let the dead become alive. We're wrong if we think that same-sex behavior is fundamentally a different type of sin. If we're trying to pin down the most egregious sins in Scripture, there are quite a few other candidates that merit some consideration. Consider, for instance, the number of times in Scripture we get very explicit directions that have to deal with materialism and pride. Scripture is crystal clear in this, but they are both enormous issues for us here in the American church. Are we going to be as clear about that? 
When Jesus met those with sexual sin, he graciously invited them to come back into the fold. But who met those who were religiously proud, his words were blistering in his confrontation with them. And then we're wrong if we assume for some reason that it's harder for LGBTQ people to go to heaven. It's wrong. Repentance for a gay or a lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as it does for a straight or a religious person. God, I'm sorry for elevating my desires higher than yours. I surrender myself for you. I I will define my identity in you and your design for me. For seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment, I ask for forgiveness. Rather than giving glory to you, I've been pursuing myself. I recognize Jesus is the Lord and I turn over control to him. That's what repentance looks like for someone who is gay, straight, rich, poor, black, white, young, old, Jew, or Gentile. We all come to Jesus the same way. So this morning as our ushers come forward, I know we've run a little long this morning. If today's message was terrible, (laughs) go back to God's word this morning see what he has to say. If you need to pull out that connection card that you've already written down something for a prayer request on it, would you, would you mark something down there to say, I, I need to get some clarity on some of these things? Because these are complex issues, and I know that. I understand that. But if we have done anything other than highlight that our sin only has one solution, and that is a Savior, Jesus Christ. If we've done anything but that, we have made a mistake, and it is a terrible sermon. But if you've heard, and I pray that you have, that wherever you're coming from this morning, that a holy God through his son Jesus Christ is calling out to you saying, come to me. Come to me, all you are needy. Come to me, I will make you whole. All of you are struggling with identity issues. All of you are struggling with you fill in the blank. Come to me, and I will restore you to who I created you to be. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had. We trust that your words are true or that your scripture has come alive this morning and we call on it for authority to speak on these things. Lord, we love each and every person in this room because you have told us to and you are working in each of our hearts. Lord, your call is wide. There is not any person on this planet, any human being who has ever walked, that you did not give an opportunity to come into the fold. And so, Lord, we extend that opportunity this morning. For as many as receive him, to them they be called the children of God. Or if there's any who would come today, say, Lord, I want to become a child. I want to be part of your family. I've been looking for family. I've been looking for community. I've been looking all over the place. But your scripture says that if I come to you, I am literally adopted into the family of God, and I want that. I pray that they would come to me in the back, drop something in the offering plate to start that discussion. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you move and that you work. In Jesus' name I pray.